Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the Oxford Journal Global Summetry. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Joseph Nye Jr. to this uh, Global Summetry podcast. Joe is a Harvard University Service Professor Emeritus and a former Dean of the Kennedy School of Government. Besides his many years at Harvard, Joe also served in government, including as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, and he was also Chair of the National Intelligence Council. For international relations scholars, of course, he is very well known for his work on complex interdependence with Robert Cohane, and more recently, his promotion of the concept of soft power in international relations. For Joe, more recently, uh, he's been examining uh, the role of cybersecurity on international relations, and it is in fact on questions around cybersecurity, cyber espionage, and cyber warfare that we engage Joe Nye in this podcast conversation. So let's join the conversation on cybersecurity with Harvard's Joseph Nye Jr. So welcome, Joe. It's a real pleasure to have you with us uh, at Global Summetry. Pleasure to be with you. Oh, great. So, <clears throat> Joe, before we get into kind of the cyber world, which is what you and I thought we should talk about uh, today, uh, I thought I'd uh, get you to kind of reflect just a wee bit on the um, international system. You know, there's been lots of startling kinds of uh, behaviors or statements in any case around Trump's uh, trade policy, around um, you know, climate change, etc. But Trump's apparently most startling and aggressive policy has been on the Korean Peninsula. How would you judge the Trump efforts to force, I presume, the DPRK's denuclearization? Well, I'm not sure he's going to be very successful. Uh, after all, we've been trying for uh, uh, 20 years without great success. Um, Ironically, while I'm not sympathetic to Trump and his dismantlement of uh, the liberal rules-based system overall, it might turn out that uh, his bluster um, may have some beneficial effects on the Korean situation by making the Chinese take it more seriously. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're going to change Kim Jong-un, but I think the Chinese might worry a little bit that... Uh, Trump is just um, uh, idiosyncratic and dangerous enough that uh, that they have to do more than they've been willing to do in the past. Uh, but I, frankly, at this stage, I'm not very optimistic. I mean, can one even characterize? I mean, the bluster part, I think we all agree on. But is it kind of you know people have thrown up things like the madman theory or maybe deterrence? or compellence, or however you want to describe it. Is there anything w we can see which gives it some parallel to strategic activity, or no? Well, Richard Nixon used to talk about the madman theory. Right. And uh, there is, in Thomas Schelling's writings, there is uh, grounds to uh, justify that. But I don't think Trump has been sufficiently uh, consistent or strategic to make a very credible madman. Mm -hmm. But uh, we'll have to see. I mean, it's conceivable that after the 
party Congress that Xi Jinping will be willing to push a little harder on Kim Jong-un. But uh, thus far, the Chinese, I think, have felt they can manage Trump and have not been able to manage uh, Kim Jong-un. Mm-hmm. Well, then let's let's turn more to the kind of the, the cyber world concerns. I noted that a few years ago, you wrote a piece on uh, in, in Strategic Studies Quarterly called Nuclear Lessons for Cybersecurity. More recently, in International uh, Security, the journal, you wrote a piece called Deterrence and Dissuasion. I guess the big question here for, from my perspective in looking at these pieces is, is there, are, are there strong lessons that you think can be gained by looking back at uh, the, the evolution of uh, nuclear, the nuclear experience and nuclear strategies for cyber world activity or no? There is a comparison in one sense um, that when you have a radical new technology, it takes states quite some time to learn how to adapt to it. And in that sense, uh, it took about 20 years uh, to get to the first arms control agreements in the nuclear era. Mm -hmm. And we're at about 20 years into the world of dependence on the web as a substrate for so much of our economy and politics. So there's a comparison there, but the nature of deterrence is very different in the two areas. Um, nuclear deterrence was something all or nothing. I mean, if you nuke me, I will nuke you. And mm-hmm. so if deterrence fails, it's a, it's a total disaster. Cyber is more like deterrence in the criminal law. Um, you're trying to get a percentage where you can raise the price high enough that uh, bad guys say, well, the costs exceed the benefits, mm-hmm. but it's going to be imperfect. You're not going to deter everything. And in that sense, I think uh, uh, it's a mistake to go from nuclear deterrence, um, which focused very heavily on retaliation, right. to cyber deterrence, which has to include not just retaliation, but also deterrence by denial uh, deterrence through entanglement and deterrence through uh, taboos and norms. Mm-hmm. So it's, the cyber deterrence is a much more complex political process and much more imperfect. And, and just uh, maybe you can explain a little bit the deterrence by denial. What is it that you're uh, referencing? Well, well, deterrence by denial is the effort to raise the threshold so that the attacker or aggressor says the benefits I'm going to get from this attack mm-hmm. are not worth the effort I have to put into it. Okay. Or some people call it uh, arranging the workload factor so that the attacker <laughs> says, well, I might be able to succeed, but it would cost me so much to succeed that it's not worth it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that means that uh, better protections of cyber systems, uh, better hygiene in a society as a whole, uh, better standards for the way uh, uh, systems are constructed. Uh, all these are ways to increase deterrence by denial. And uh, some people would say that we had deterrence by denial in the nuclear era. That's why we had troops on the ground in Europe to prevent the Soviets from sweeping across the North German plain. But uh, the real deterrence in, in nuclear was retaliatory. Mm-hmm. And many people say, but 
in cyber, the a major part of the burden of deterrence is going to be denial by raising the cost to the attacker. I see. Now, you know, clearly, I mean, in the cyber world, one of the real contrasts with the, with the nuclear world is that you have a lot of private sector actors involved in the, the entire complex. So doesn't that make it really quite different? Very much so, because the question of, uh, for example, of uh, hardening your systems or raising the costs are, uh, some of them are governmental, uh, but a large part of them are investments that are made by companies. Mm -hmm. And some companies have not invested adequately, or when they have, their uh, uh, systems are obsolete. The, the Equifax uh, case, uh, 145 uh, million uh, uh, pieces of personal information being disclosed, is a case in point where apparently they just hadn't got the, uh, the a, a system in place which uh, was adequate to protect, and uh, that was a decision made by a company. Mm -hmm. And the CEO Equifax has been appearing before the Congress and uh, apologizing, but nonetheless the damage is done. It includes. Uh, social security numbers of many citizens, which are government uh, numbers. So, we, yes, we depend very heavily on the private component. So is it, I mean, would would we be likely to see uh, the American government, for example, setting out certain standards? Or how, how does the government cause the private sector to do, uh, to, to do some you know, engineering work, uh, infrastructure work that is really at the behest of the private sector. The government has established certain standards. NIST, which is a branch of uh, of the Commerce Department, mm -hmm. has set standards for uh, secure systems. But uh, we're not very good at enforcing uh, <laughs> companies to live up to it. Okay. In some ways, insurance mar uh, markets may help. In other words, if companies are begin to be sued for uh, not having adequate defenses, um, and that uh, starts costing them something, uh, then they may be uh, willing to do it. And a robust insurance market would help. Right now, there's, there's beginnings of an insurance market, but we lack all the actuarial tables about risks uh, that are necessary for uh, uh, developing that insurance market. Okay, so so in effect, you you'd provide that insurance uh, uh, and obviously standards that then companies would be seeking to meet in order to achieve those re to to receive uh, those benefits. Right, and this is going to be particularly true with the Internet of Things, where people estimate there'll be some twenty five billion connections to the Internet by twenty twenty. Uh, and those, most of those will not be people. Maybe, uh, you know, three or four billion of those will be people. The rest of them will be processors and industrial control and other sorts of uh, uh, systems. And there, it's going to be absolutely essential to uh, require higher standards. And that's where insurance can play a major role. I see. If companies can be sued by putting a smart toaster in your kitchen 
but the smart toaster goes in, and uh, uh, bugs you and sends your information to a criminal, mm-hmm. uh, and you should be able to uh, to sue the manufacturer of that smart toaster. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, uh, he's going to put in the cheapest uh, system he can to sell it to you. Okay. But if he has to uh, pay a penalty or pay for insurance, he might find it worthwhile putting in a more secure uh, chip. In the cyber world, there are a lot of terms, and when you read things, uh, you begin to realize that there are these many terms that are being used uh, in in the cyber world. And I wonder if you can help us kind of distinguish, at least in a broad sense, the the difference between kind of cyber security from cyber espionage, from cyber terrorism, cyber attack, cyber warfare. Obviously, these have presumably different connotations. Well, the the term cyber attack is used much too broadly to mm-hmm. cover just about everything. Okay. And um, uh, the you know there are millions of attacks every day against uh, uh, the government or or. Uh, I mean, it's just the term, if it could be defacing of a website, sometimes called an attack. The serious things are usually divided into cyber espionage or exploitation, as it's called, mm-hmm. uh, which you put a malware into a system to get information. And um, uh, cyber attack in a strict sense um, in which you try to damage or disrupt and uh uh, that uh, that's a different proposition, mm-hmm. uh, that type of, of uh, attack more narrowly. What we, what we see is there are not that many uh, cyber attacks in the sense of destruction, such as the destruction of centrifuges in Iran mm-hmm. uh, via Stuxnet uh, a few years ago. Right. Uh, there, there, are, there are some, but there haven't been that many of them. And the other thing that's interesting is terrorists use the Internet and cyber for coordination and training and sharing of information. Thus far, they haven't used it for destruction or for wreaking uh, damage to cause terror. Mm -hmm. Uh, But some people say that is just because it's coming and we haven't got there yet. (laughs) So uh, is there a place, is there a threshold, uh, Joe, where... A cyber attack, which you've described, becomes, in quotes, cyber war? Well, it's a matter of, of political judgment when it becomes war or not. The doctrine of, uh, of the um, Department of Defense in the U.S. is equivalence to a kinetic attack. In other words, if somebody attacks an American system, let's say the grid, uh, and it has effects in terms of costs or loss of life, they're equivalent to a kinetic attack or physical attack, okay. yeah. then we uh, will have we reserve the right to call it a war, an act of war, mm-hmm. and to respond with any means we want. We don't have to uh, respond with cyber means. If, it's, uh, if oh. it reaches that threshold, uh, we've reserved the right to use any uh, weapon in response. And, and in many cases, a kinetic weapon might be more effective than a cyber weapon. I see. So if we go back to some of the instances where, in quotes, these attacks have occurred, let's say Sony, uh, which was attacked by the, presumably attacked by the DPRK, uh, by the North Koreans, 
that would not constitute then cyber war. The uh, president called it um, a, a malicious act, right? Uh, but it didn't call it a war. Um, and there is a question of when is it useful to um, uh, call something an act of war? There is a, a work that's been done by um, a group of, of international lawyers called the Tallinn Manual, named after Tallinn in Estonia, mm -hmm. which um, looks at how the laws of armed conflict apply to cyber attack or can be made to apply to cyber attack. Uh, but these are at the high end of the spectrum. Okay. And some of the attacks, like um, North Korea interfering with Sony Pictures, uh, don't reach that threshold of the laws of armed conflict. And that's sometimes called the gray zone. Okay. Attacks that are below the equivalent of an armed attack. And it's harder to, uh, to deal with deterrence in those areas uh, because it's more ambiguous. I see. Um, would, and I mean, it's interesting you raise Estonia because there was a serious denial of service attack, presumably by uh, elements of the, of the Russian. Uh, military or intelligence on Estonia, would that be cl getting closer to uh, the notion of a of a cyber warfare? Well, that uh, that denial of service attack in Estonia in two thousand and seven mm -hmm. um, is closer to it, but it, it people didn't die. Right, uh, right. It was it disrupted the internet, disrupted the economy, uh, didn't kill people. And in general, I think the feeling was that um, it didn't reach the level of the laws of armed conflict. Okay. But uh, uh, you could imagine doing that, uh, something like that in the midst of winter in which the pipes freeze and people <laughs> die. Uh, that's a different proposition. It, it, it's the case that in 2015, the United States and China, through various negotiations, in fact, reached a cybersecurity agreement. Uh, what's the nature and scope of that agreement, and does it have wider applicability than just this bilateral uh, arrangement? Well, it's an interesting example of a gray zone area, the theft of intellectual property by cyber espionage, where the Americans threatened sanctions, mm -hmm. and the Chinese decided to reverse their long-held position and to agree that they would not use cyber espionage uh, for commercial advantage to hand over the stolen intellectual property to Chinese businesses. Okay. And the interesting thing is that Obama and Xi Jinping, who reached this agreement in, uh, I guess it was September of 2015, then took it to the G20 mm -hmm. and had it endorsed at the G20. Uh, Joe, let's let's turn now to kind of the the Russian intrusions of various sorts that we've heard about, and see how they kind of match up and where where they're going and what U.S. responses might be. I mean, uh, the initial uh, concerns uh, seem to be from the U.S. side, seem, and what gave rise to a number of congressional uh, uh, investigations. Uh, were Russian intrusions in, into U.S. electoral politics in the presidential election, and more particularly, 
uh, the hacking of the DNC, the Democratic National Committee servers, and then dumping all those emails out into the public arena through a, a period of weeks, even uh, months, uh, with respect to the election and the impact. I mean, what does one make of that? And what, it, what should uh, the American response be if, in fact, that is the case? Well, the uh, Russian interference with the U.S. election in 2016 mm -hmm. uh, was a good example of this gray zone from uh, it didn't reach the level of armed conflict, but in the Russian hybrid war doctrine in which you use information warfare as part of larger campaigns, it certainly was regarded as a hostile act. What's interesting is that the Americans did not respond strongly enough to deter the Russians and to get them to stop. Right. Obama spoke to uh, Putin at the uh, in September of 2016, uh, but Putin didn't stop the behavior. And uh, what we've seen is that the Russians were not deterred. Right. On the other hand, if you look at Russian behavior in the French election and the German elections, uh, there has been certain inoculation. In other words, the widespread publicity and naming and shaming that came out of this not only has deterred Trump from doing what he wants to do with Putin because of American domestic politics, but also alerted uh, Macron and Merkel and others in Europe uh, to be wary about Russian misinformation and disinformation disrupting their campaigns. Mm -hmm. So um, it may be that Putin was too clever by half in terms of this campaign. But in any case, it's, it now is getting a lot of attention from Congress and uh, uh, from the government in Washington. And, and uh, it extends, obviously, beyond just the question of the hacking that we've heard about, particularly with the DNC um, servers and so forth, because more recently, and uh, my understanding is, we've had more attention paid to social media and so-called disinform the disinformation campaigns, um, which have an impact, uh, as we saw Facebook and Twitter, and in fact, Facebook handing over something like 3,000 um, documents uh, related to advertising and targeting uh, that seemed uh, that appeared to have gone on. Uh, I mean, part of what's happening here, apparently, is that uh, this is in part related to various Russian media uh, sources, most particularly RT, which is a Russian-financed media uh, provision, and Sputnik. So, so again, you know, how does the United States then respond if you've got these, um, these institutions, these media sources, that in fact are, in quotes, uh, uh, at least at some level, legitimate? Well, it, there's a wide range of behavior there, partly, I mean, RT is a propaganda machine for the Russian government, but um, it is uh, at least out and above board. But the kinds of things that the Russian intelligence agencies were doing was uh, going to Facebook and Google mm -hmm. and placing advertisements uh, under false names and then having these advertisements targeted at particular groups. Um, 
So if you wanted to raise racial concerns or if you wanted to raise concerns about immigration uh, to disrupt the political campaign, uh, you, a Russian uh, intelligence unit would go and put an ad on uh, uh, Facebook and showing a black woman aiming a rifle. And then they would send this to supporters uh, of Trump or people who were noted to be uh, uh, anti-immigration or, or having a racial background. And they target in particular vulnerable states and districts. So that's a long way from RT. But then RT could sometimes pick up these false stories and then broadcast them. And then they'd get on the trending news. Yep. And this would be reinforced by uh, botnets, which essentially are uh, machines which just amplify the number of times something is repeated so that it would be seen as a major news trend. And by the time people corrected it or caught up with the falsehood that was involved, uh, many people had seen it and begun to believe it. So that's a, that's a long way from either hacking or from uh, just broadcasting uh, Russian propaganda. It's, a, it's a basically a covert information warfare, which is then amplified uh, by open uh, uh, media such as RT. But isn't the ambiguity carried even further than that in the sense that, you know, RT when it started out was all about how wonderful Russia is and so forth, but they can they really transform themselves by focusing on local news. And one, you know, one example of some of the uh, dilemma that's posed by that is they picked up on this issue of the death of Seth Rich, who was a DNC staffer, and questions were being raised about that DNC staffer. They uh, advanced uh, questions about that uh, when mainstream media in the United States uh, did not, but then it got picked up by Fox, and Fox had promoted that issue, raising questions as well. So, so how, you know, again, how does the United States begin to deal with this and parse this out when, when you've got this interaction between Russian sources and then American sources around what ultimately proves to be fake news? Well, that's, that fake news problem is, is a major problem, and the Seth Rich case is a, uh, an instance where mainstream news picked up something in the form of Fox. They later apologized for that, mm -hmm. and it's now widely discredited. But uh, uh, it's happening not just from Russians and others. For example, uh, with the killings in Las Vegas, yes. uh, there were some right-wing groups associated according to a New York Times story yesterday with 4chan, which basically were planning to put out false news stories saying that the killing was done by oh, yes. an anti-Trump liberal. Mm -hmm. Well, by the time that was corrected, it was picked up and broadcast, uh, and many people saw it as trending news, as though it was a real news story. Mm -hmm. And then it can be picked up after that by RT and others. Right. So... Uh, it, it's not just the Russian intelligence that does this. It's also a, uh, uh, you know, a partisan groups trying to create havoc and disruption. Mm -hmm. 
So, um, um, is I mean, you're suggesting it's somewhat separate, but let me end on this. No, because you did raise it. It would appear that the Russians have become rather um, f have begun to favor this kind of hybrid war. Uh, concept, which in part comes from the current uh, chief of the general staff, uh, General Gerasimov, and you know he's e e enlarged the notion of conflict to include o the obvious ones: political, economic, uh, military, but now informational and other means of non-military character, as he described it, applied with a larger use of the population's protest potential. Those are. I presume people who are aggrieved uh, with the government. So again, wh where does the United States go, and more particularly, where does the American intelligence community and the American military go if this is in fact being incorporated into a wider strategic uh, component of Russian activity? Well, it's a it's a dilemma for a democratic society because you don't want the government censoring the news. Right. And so the companies have been trying to improve their algorithms and may go back to actually hiring editors to trying <laughs> to to at least limit some of the false news program programs. And in a, and the question of how far you want the government to get into the business of censorship. Uh, is very tricky. We don't want to be like Russia or China mm -hmm. in that sense. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, it's very much under debate now. There are congressional hearings on it uh, this very month, and uh, uh, the companies are going to have to pick up some of this, and then we're going to also probably want to uh, some point talk to the Russians and say, if you keep this up, we're going to make it expensive for you in some other ways. I see. But uh, uh, it's, we haven't solved the problem yet. Okay. Well, Joe, I really want to thank you for this tour de force on the question of, of the cyber world and its implications for both cyber espionage and cyber, cyber attack. Really appreciate uh, your time on this issue. Well, it's a pleasure to chat. I enjoyed it. <laughs>